Marshall here. Welcome back to The Realignment. On today's episode, I'm speaking with one of my favorite chroniclers of the populist moment in American politics, Bloomberg's Joshua Green. Joshua has a new book out. It's called The Rebels. It's all about the populist left, everyone from Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders to, of course, AOC. He also wrote a book back in 2017, 2018 called The Devil's Bargain. It's all about Steve Bannon and the populist right. I think reading these two books together is a really fascinating way of considering the past, present, and future of American politics. The Rebels is really focused on how the 2008 financial crisis and the Obama administration's efforts to both address the issues, but also not quite address the issues, to put it lightly, are really at the center of the book's core. And understanding how the Biden administration has worked to take those critiques of 2010's democratic policy and actually try to build a new coalition moving into 2024 is really key. So hope you all enjoy this conversation. But also, like I said in the episode, read these two books together because understanding how the populist left, populist right have come to attack the political establishment, while also then cataloging how the political establishment has sought to kind of take those critiques and put them into their actual programs shows how American politics really works. Hope you all enjoy the conversation. Joshua Green, welcome to The Realignment. Great to be with you. So something I like to do, especially with an author whose work I really enjoy, is I like to kind of find a theme that ties together their underlying work, especially with two different books. So Mm -hmm. um, 2018, you did Devil's Bargain. It's about Steve Bannon and his role in Donald Trump's rise. And the new book um, out now is called The Rebels. It's about AOC, Bernie, and Elizabeth Warren. And it seems to me the tie between these two books and this like theme of your work is that if we're looking at the American political system, at any one moment, there are just figures, trends, and dynamics that are going to be incredibly important a few years out, but everyone is just totally unaware of. So like in 2011, you meet Steve Bannon when he's hawking a mediocre Sarah Palin documentary <laughs> that no one had ever seen. Yes, I did. <laughs> and then two, in this book, if it's 2011, 2012, 2013, okay, the financial crisis is in the past, we're moving forward, 2012 election, Obama wins, but actually the whole time, that underlying um, dissatisfaction with the response is going to play a huge role in the latter half of the 2010s. So here's my first question for you. Sitting in the year 2023, could you think of any figures, ideas, themes, or just dynamics that you're kind of thinking about that maybe could end up being a much bigger deal in like 2028 or 2032 that we're not thinking about? Yeah, I can. I'm going to give you a weird two-part answer to that. So one, I, I love your framing of the issues. There are a theme that kind of unites the, your your work. And there absolutely is for me as a writer in these two books in particular. And I think of it in terms of uh, populism, that that the Devil's Bargain was a book about Steve Bannon, Donald Trump, and the rise of right-wing populism. And I sort of, you know, traced that up through the, the 2016 election because I weirdly known those guys and spent a lot of time with them. And the new book, The Rebels, is is really the flip side of that coin. It's about the rise of left-wing populism since the financial crisis, told through the stories of like three people that I think, and, and thought back then, um, are, are really important historical figures, even though none of them is in the White House today. And that's Elizabeth Warren, uh, Bernie Sanders, and AOC. Now, as we're sitting here today, um, you know, everybody 
uh, at the high levels of American politics is like 100 years old, right? We've got, you know, Warren and Bernie and Trump and Pelosi and Chuck Schumer and everybody. So to answer your question about 2023, I mean, the, the person that I'm most interested to keep an eye on is my third character, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, partly because she's the kind of generational representative of this brand of left populism that I write about. And also kind of like from an actuarial standpoint, she may be the only one left uh, left on the scene 10 years from now, Cer certainly the only one I think that will be holding elected office. And what's interesting to me, you know, first about the 2024 election, which I really do think is going to be a referendum, a national referendum on which brand of populism Trump's right wing or Biden's left wing uh, America wants. Uh, I, I think the really interesting thing to me is going to be where where she is going forward 10 years from now. What path does America choose? And how does someone like AOC, who came into national politics as a radical, uh, but as I write in the book, in, in the story of her political career, uh, has really learned how to work within the congressional system and become effective, how does she carry that brand of uh, politics forward 10 years from now and put into po uh, in, in, into practice uh, the kind of policies that Biden has begun to implement, but there's still a long way to go uh, in order for Democrats to get to that kind of social democratic vision that I think is the one that she wants. I think if we're sitting from the year 2019 and thinking about the American political system, the most surprising thing the one would have taken from your answer is Joe Biden's populism. Yes. That is very much not on the table from our political consumption perspective. So articulate what you mean by Joe Biden's brand of populism. So I, I you know, I think that the like kind of the, the wildest, most interesting story in our politics today, sitting in plain sight, is the evolution of Joe Biden from a senator from Delaware who uh, you know, in the 80s and 90s, and even the 2000s, when I came to Washington, started my political reporting career, uh, was basically viewed as Wall Street's best friend uh, in Washington. Bob Dole once famously ribbed Biden um, as the senator from corporate America because he represented Delaware and that's where most corporations are. Uh, you know, and the fact that Biden has gone from being the senator of corporate America to um Beating the populists in 2020, but but really evolving the Democratic Party, especially on matters of economics, industrial policy, that sort of thing, really in the direction that politicians like Sanders and Warren have been advocating for years, uh, I think is like the striking achievement of Biden's presidency. Um, and the fact that he's governed uh, very much along the lines as, as Warren and Sanders would have wanted him to, at least on economic matters. Uh, and not only that, but brought into uh, the upper levels of his administration, uh, Warren staffers and allies like Ron Klain, and, and, and it watched and, and allowed them to kind of put put a lot of these policies into, into practice, You know, I think is like one of the most remarkable late in life political transformations that we've seen. Um, and maybe it's because of social media, maybe it's because of the culture wars, maybe it's because of Trump, uh, but I feel like people don't recognize that and appreciate that. And, and, and the real kind of conclusion at the end of my book is that while a lot of um, progressives and left-wingers that I know are, you know, frankly, a little despondent that there isn't a President Bernie Sanders or there isn't a President Elizabeth Warren, uh, you know, the fact that Biden has been able to implement so much of their um, agenda really represents a triumph 
for the populist left that I wouldn't have imagined even three or four years ago, but certainly not back in, you know, 2000 when I was going to congressional hearings, you know, and Joe Biden as the Delaware senator was grilling Elizabeth Warren as the liberal Harvard professor. Never in a million years could I uh, have envisioned how the Biden administration would unfold. It seems to me the interesting thing about Biden's populist turn is it kind of went the opposite direction one would expect it to actually happen, especially based on the 2020 primary. So for example, um, and you catalog this in the book, and this is something lots of folks have written about, very early um, in the primaries, the Overton window has obviously expanded. So you have you know people yeah. like Beto O'Rourke <laughs> saying, I'm going to take away AR-15s, Korea, not something he would have said four or five, six years ago when he's running for Congress the first time. You then have all the Democrats, even the center left or centrist Democrats, like tumbling head over heels over each other to sign on to Medicare for all bills. Exactly. Very much Kamala not Harris was the first one, right? First yeah. one, which is not something that would have happened before. Joe Biden very much, though, is not a part of that political dynamic. I think Biden's successful political instinct was understanding that 2020 wasn't a policy battle. It was basically a we don't want Trump to be president battle. And that was the first question Democratic voters were asking, like not what's the wonky tank here. But I guess my real question is, um, what then, if he didn't make all the policy turns during the campaign, what do you think is happening when he comes into office in 2021 and starts to actually like take that turn itself? That, you know, that is, that is such a great question. Um, the first one and also the second one, to me, kind of as I as I look back, you know, I think I think about the book sort of as as the modern history of the Democratic Party, and I'm kind of writing almost kind of from a historian standpoint, stuff that I covered in real time as a reporter. And so as I was going back over those 2020 primaries and kind of the period leading up to them, like looking back, the thing that jumps out at me so much now was, was just how wild it was that those primaries were framed and shaped and fought over frankly, radical ideas about whether or not we should wipe out America's uh, you know private insurance system and replace it with a $30 trillion Medicare for all plan, uh, which was like what the Democratic primaries were fought over. And I think it's entirely to Biden's credit. And honestly, it's a little bit unbelievable that other people didn't have the, the same insight that Biden did, was that, listen, Americans who are considering voting for a Democrat and who are unhappy about uh, America under Trump, are they're looking for the surest pair of hands uh, to eject Trump from the White House. And, you know, Biden isn't the most charismatic politician. But, you know, he's moderate, he's safe seeming, he didn't fall all over himself to endorse uh, Medicare for all. And in fact, you know, said so on the debate stage. Uh, and I think that was his key, the, the key to his victory in the Democratic primaries. But I also think that the reason Biden turned to the left, you know, traditionally, you win, you win the primary, you're supposed to pivot to the center. Biden really didn't do that in, in, in 2020. I think he pivoted to the left, certainly on matters of, of uh, you know, economics and some of the things that Warren uh, and Bernie were pushing. And definitely as a president, governed more as an economic populist than anyone would have imagined. And I think that is because Biden was in the White House as Barack Obama's vice president in 2009, as that administration was responding to the last great financial crisis, uh, the, the financial crisis of 2008, well, Biden wins the White House finally now. And what does he inherit? He inherits an even deeper financial crisis. And I think that this is a lot of the history that I tell in, in The Rebels. I think that Biden looked back at the way the Obama administration 
uh, handled the aftermath of the financial crisis. Seven years it took to rebuild, you know, to 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 uh, recover the jobs that were lost. Long period of austerity. A lot of anger that led to this populist backlash on the right and the left. You know, Occupy Wall Street, the Tea Party, eventually the rise and election of Donald Trump. I think that Biden saw all that and instinctively understood that the response this time around has to be fundamentally different than the one uh, that uh, Obama and Biden instituted back in 2009. And that means in particular that it can't be geared at saving banks, even if that's necessary to prop up the economy. It needs to be the term Biden used, I think, is uh, middle out recovery this time. Uh, but it needs to be focused on the middle class. And I think that the clearest influence of my characters in the book, Warren, Bernie, and AOC, was that in 2009, uh, you know, Warren was the uh, the TARP oversight cop. You know, she was appointed to this board to kind of police the Wall Street bank bailout. Uh, you know, and at the time had a lot of ideas about what Obama ought to be doing to help the middle class recover, because that that had been a lot of what she studied as a Harvard professor had been the way bankruptcy can kind of ravage to income trap like these like the, those dynamics exactly and she kind of handed this menu of policies like you know uh student loan forgiveness rent freezes eviction moratoriums uh and and really very little of that got implemented in 2008 2009 well in comes joe biden in 2021 and basically takes up the entire warren middle class crisis agenda and I don't think it's any coincidence for as unpopular as Biden is in opinion polls, if you look at the economic numbers, you know, we recover the jobs lost to COVID in two years, not seven years. We're at near record low unemployment, uh, near record stock market. Inflation was high, but it's coming down. Looks like the Fed is going to cut interest rates. Um, Biden's personal popularity numbers are, are, are fairly poor. But if you look at the kind of economic numbers, I work at Bloomberg, so I look at this stuff all day long. Uh, they really do suggest that 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 we're on the cusp of 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 mourning in America again. If if people if if these numbers kind of keep trending this way uh, during 2024, heading into November, could wind up as as wind in Biden's sails. You know, it's really interesting when you're comparing, contrasting the response to the 2008 financial crisis and then the COVID crisis, because it seems as if. That's just a perfect example of how in the space of a little more than a decade, America itself changed in the sense that, you know, I was a junior in high school during the financial crisis. So about as I was about as like young as you could be and kind of like remember the debates and what was really happening. Um, and you quote this in the book, but there really was this punitive view that people took of people who were underwater with their mortgages um, or had really screwed up. And I think that something that helpfully came out of like the Trump backlash 2016 moment. This is everything from trade um, destroying jobs to the opioid crisis. I think there just was not as much appetite for people basically saying, F you, I've got mine, you take care of yours, which people were so explicit about in 2009. Like this is Rick Santelli. That they, seems to be a real say, way the yeah. country, that's a, I think that's just a discernible way. It also explains why Biden would take a different response than the Obama, because it's the actual foundation of the country was different. I think it's absolutely like, like in it, an elite kind of inside the beltway political perspective, you know, I know from kind of my day-to-day -day reporting and, and research I did for this book that one of the reasons for that was that people in both parties, including Republicans, to their credit, looked back at that 2008, 2009 response and said, you know, uh, in hindsight, we didn't do nearly enough to help the middle class. 
uh, class. And it helped give rise to this backlash that has upended both parties uh, and their establishments in ways that we're still feeling the aftershocks from. And, you know, <laughs> looks like we will through at least 2024, um, especially if Donald Trump comes back and wins the nomination. I think the other factor, though, is that Biden certainly and, and, and Democrats in general, I think, have a better understanding now of what can be done through the government to kind of help people now in a way that wasn't done before. And now you know, we can see in the macro economy the effect that an aggressive government intervention can have. And I do think in fairness to the political establishments in both parties that didn't do this last time around, that it was made easier by the fact that it was a pathogen that was causing all this economic chaos. And so mm -hmm. you couldn't blame it as Rick Santelli did on your greedy neighbor who took out too big a mortgage or you know the libs or the MAGA people or whatever. It was just this. It was just this terrible pandemic that had thrown all sorts of people out of work, who kind of self-evidently were not at fault for their plight and needed to be supported and rescued um, from from the economic carnage that was about to ensue. Something I'm really curious about. I ask this for when I speak with guests who focus on this like post neoliberalism um, discourse. So. Um, at the start of the book, you point out there are basically two dates that really matter for the purpose of the story. So there's the 2008 financial crisis period, but there's also like 1978, um, 1980, like this period where the Democratic Party takes a different position towards um, corporate money and its underlying um, set of policy beliefs um, as the New Deal coalition and set of policies kind of come collapsing around themselves. So here's the question. I think this is just like really fascinating. No one quite has an answer to it. So- Reagan very much comes out of this inflationary New Deal, lack of faith in government moment. It seems to me that if Joe Biden loses re-election next year, a lot of the, the basic storyline is going to be, look, abortion was bad for the Republicans. Trump wasn't a great Republican nominee, but just like the inflation that was caused by all the COVID spending was just so big that it just overwhelmed and the American populace like punished Biden for it. I feel as if if that is the storyline coming out of 2024, the progressive and left side on also the right wing side too, of the populist movements will be an incredibly difficult place, which means it will be harder to kind of move on from that market story. I'm curious how you think about like that diagnosis. I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. Yeah. I mean, the remarkable thing, you know, what, what, what Biden needs to happen or wants to happen in 2024 is what happened to Ronald Reagan in 1984. That yes, you know, he'd overseen this 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 uh, deep, well, at the time, deep recession and uh, soaring inflation, but it was coming down. And you know, as the famous ad told us, it's morning in America again, and enough Americans believed that because we weren't weren't as partisan, quite as it polarized as a country back then. Enough Americans believed that. Um, that Reagan was able to win uh, a landslide re-election victory. I think for Biden, uh, as I'd said earlier, like I, you know, working at Bloomberg, I kind of stew in these numbers all day long. And you can you can kind of see in the macro economy and lots of different little measures, like things beginning to turn in the right direction, especially if Jerome Powell and the Federal Reserve um, start cutting interest rates again, as they signal they will, and as people expect them to start doing, maybe as early as March. All of that would be helpful to Biden. Uh, and yet, uh, Americans are unhappy, and it's clear that they're unhappy about inflation. And it's 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 hurt Biden's poll numbers in a way that 
um, frankly, has has surprised even me just to see the the the, the negativity and, and the bad feelings uh, about Biden in particular among a lot of core Democratic groups, young people, minorities who who traditionally you would expect to support him. I think that could be a real problem for him. Um, but but part of my um, it's not so much a message in the book, um, but part of, part of my message as an author who's who's written about the rise of this left politics and has been frankly personally a little baffled by a lot of the antipathy to Biden from the left this kind of lefty doomerism uh, about they don't like him they want to support him it seems to me uh as i say in the book that Biden has has implemented a lot of these left populist policies and that if he is de- defeated certainly the conclusion among democrats is going to be well, Biden's loss invalidates these ideas. It shows that if you implement them, it leads to inflation. It makes you a one-termer. And I think it will make Biden um, and a lot of these ideas as toxic as Jimmy Carter was after he lost in 1980 to Ronald Reagan, which is also something I kind of wrote about in the book. After Carter's loss, the entire generation of ambitious Democratic presidential hopefuls after him immediately turned on him, embraced this kind of neoliberal market-friendly idea, and ran in an opposite direction than from what Democrats uh, had traditionally embraced, being the party of unions, the party of labor, and the working class, which they'd been from the 1940s until the 1970s. I think that that the Democratic Party would, would undergo uh, a similar evolution, I assume in the direction of sort of Larry Summers style uh, austerity and uh, hands off the economy. And I think that would be a huge setback to the characters that I write about who've pushed so hard to instantiate this this version of left politics or left populism that's developed since the last crisis. Well, I think what's interesting about that to respond is I don't think it's necessarily that also because Larry Summers is also one of these aging figures. It's not necessarily that history perfectly, you know, repeats itself and you have the Democratic Party turn towards Larry Summers. But I think the pretty clear answer here um, because this would mean Trump would be reelected, is you would have the Democratic Party turn itself clearer towards, look, we had the formula. The formula was suburban voters hate Donald J. Trump. Yep. They like normal things. Biden ran as a normal guy in 2020, and then he got all the Warren staffers in. Everything got all crazy of Bidenomics. Let's focus on being the anti-Trump majoritarian party and then basically put all the economic stuff to the side um so it's not even that you need to become like this forward-facing neoliberal like it's 1985 you could actually just (laughs) embrace the status quo in a way that separate from policy outcomes i think is actually kind of intellectually defensible from a political consultant perspective i I think it could be right so you're not going to get the second coming of the atari democrats what you could get instead is sort of Gretchen Whitmer running as a safe, younger, normie mom, Midwest governor who seems like kind of changing, you know, a a turning of the page generationally and policy wise from uh, the left populist Biden years where, you know, Warren and Bernie had a had a seat at the table. Yeah, I could I could definitely see that happening. Uh, it, It would be really interesting in a gruesome sort of way to to see how Democrats do respond to a second Trump term, um, because that would mean that there has just been a colossal failure of of, of democratic governance, or at, at least of uh, democratic political execution. Um, yeah, I think the first thing would be a general agreement. I, I, I think that Biden would sort of be Carterized. People would, mm-hmm. would say, what were we thinking 
you know, renominating this old man. He was supposed to be a one-termer. He told us he was going to be a transitional president, and yet he didn't leave. And he and his unpopular vice president handed the handed the White House right back to Donald Trump. So um, we will go back to sort of the era of of the famous Democratic circular firing squad, where everybody be stabbing everybody else in the back. But what emerges out of that policy-wise, I really, I really don't know. I mean, I would like to believe that. Um, the lessons learned from the great financial crisis and its aftermath still do apply to a certain degree. Because let's remember, it wasn't just Joe Biden that responded to the COVID crash with a big stimulus and beefed up unemployment benefits. It was Donald Trump, to his credit. you know, And it's Trump is the one who has uh, begun or had begun to institute an industrial policy and uh, raise tariffs with China, you know, things that Biden has not stripped away. So um, certainly it would be a big setback to kind of the characters that I write about in The Rebels. But I'm, I'm, like you said, I'm not sure that we would like suddenly revert to 1985. And I think what's interesting, and you have this great quote from uh, Minnesota Fed Chairman uh, Neil Kashkari, um, where he um, points out that you know, he's a center right he ran for you know governor of California. He's like a Republican. W was in he, the Bush Treasury, yeah. During, yeah, Bush during, Treasury. During he during himself has this. Yeah. You have this great quote from him in the book where he says, "We just really did not focus enough on the people thing." So that's just an example of how just like at the end of the day, everyone has ideology, but there are just certain facts on the ground, and it was just incontrovertible how politically and economically disastrous um, the response from twenty um, two thousand eight was. Yeah, so here's and, a. Yeah. And sorry, to me, if I just show me, I mean, that's what's so interesting to me about writing this kind of like modern, um, you know, intellectual, you know, kind of reading and, and, and reliving and kind of thinking about this modern uh, political history is like, even now, just a few years later, you can see these enormous important lessons. Uh, I, I just think it's, I just think it's a cool thing to do. I mean, it was really, it was really the fun thing about kind of writing and reporting out this book was, was kind of writing a period that I, I'd lived and reported through in Washington. Yeah, I was embedded with a lot of these people, mm -hmm. but to go back and rewrite it again, um, you know, with the perspective of hindsight as, as, as modern history, like was really an interesting thing to do. So here's something I'd love to understand. And I think this is a real testament to the way you write your books. Um, the books to me are half policy, um, but also half politics, right? Like the hacky, unsexy side that I'm not particularly yeah. attracted to, but I think it really matters. And the difficult thing when you're kind of making the case against like the neoliberal era or the Larry Summers era, all these responses is you can argue to your long as are just totally out of air that the policies adopted by the post 1980s new Democrats or the Obama administration weren't actually up to the task. Also, let's add Bill Clinton to that. But politically, these were successful responses. You have a Democratic Party rebuild. It's, let's, let's put aside Congress for a second, but like at a, at a presidential level, you have the Democratic Party rebuild itself. Barack Obama's reelected. No one disagrees Obama wouldn't have won a third term if we didn't have that whole constitutional amendment yeah. thing. Yeah. So it seems to me the challenge for AOC, because um, of these three figures, to your point, she's the one who's going to matter longer term in terms of being an actor on the stage. It seems to me the problem for post-neoliberalism is that it hasn't put together any evidence that it's a politically successful program. 50 years from now, we could say Bidenomics made the moves we needed with chips or made the moves we needed with climate change. But I don't think Joe Biden is going to win re-election next year because of the specific like Bidenomics speech he gave. So like, where's the evidence that left populism and center-left like reformist populism 
is successful at the ballot ballot box? That well, seems to be the real yeah. challenge. I mean, the first answer to that question is: in order for it to be, Biden needs to win re-election because if he if he if he doesn't, I think that's that's sort of the end of the ball game. Um, but as far as what it looks like going forward, um, you know. I I came to believe kind of writing this book and especially watching the the 2020 Democratic primaries unfold. I was kind of embedded with Warren for a while and then Bernie for a while. And I kind of saw all the, the, the rising excitement of the left, thinking that we were on the cusp of big structural change and a radical presidency and all that kind of um, falling apart. I, I don't think that the way that this progressivism is going to work in the future is that someone like AOC is going to get elected president of the United States. I just have a hard time believing that because I think that, um, you know, for as admirable and talented a politician as she is, she's just coded as as, as radical for, for too large a segment of the American electorate. And um, kind of you know, openly lefty uh, politicians um, like Warren, certainly like Bernie Sanders, I, I think they are too. And as we spoke about earlier, I think that's one reason why Democratic voters who are initially so excited about these candidates in the 2020 primaries eventually paused, thought about it and said, you know what, I'm not going to risk uh, gambling on a second Donald Trump term by nominating Bernie to be the Democratic nominee and then watching him lose in, in, in 2020. And you know, to me, the kind of lesson in the rebels is that you know you've had you know, these these three characters uh, have have given rise to this brand of populism, but it really took a, a normal, unthreatening, moderate figure in Joe Biden to take up these policies and enact them. And I, you know, my my hunch is that that's going to be how it's going to have to work going forward. So if you ask me for what you know, what would a positive path for left populism look like over the next, let's just say 12 years to kind of mm -hmm. do it in presidential cycles, it would have to begin with a Biden reelection. And it's worth pointing out that all three of my characters, you know, could have challenged Biden in 2024. Yeah. Uh, AOC actually turns 35 in October, so she could just make it in under the wire if she <laughs> wanted to. Uh, but all of them chose not to, because I think they recognize that, that, that Biden is the vehicle forward. So first Biden would have to win. I think then in 2028, um, you would have to have uh, an appealing, broad tent uh, politician, someone like, for instance, uh, Senator Raphael Warnock in Georgia or uh, Governor Gretchen Whitmer uh, in, in Michigan or maybe like a Roy Cooper in North Carolina, take up these ideas, um, these populist ideas, kind of the Biden industrial policy, the the, the Trump tariffs and say, listen, like, this has worked. America's back. You know, Biden, uh, Biden won another term, presuming the economy is in good shape and growing by then. There will be a lot of evidence that, you know, instead of these years of austerity, we've found a formula um, through which Democrats can govern and really use the levers of government to benefit not just the middle class, but depressed areas in the Rust Belt that had uh, lost jobs to the China shock, that sort of thing. That would be, I think, the hopeful path. But uh, I'm not sure we're going to get there because mm. I was I was actually in Aliquippa, Pennsylvania, two weeks ago, the iconic uh, steel town that lost its mill in in, in uh, 1985. Been very depressed since then. Uh, I went out to do a Business Week piece. It's actually an adaptation from from, from the Rebels. It's going to run as a feature story uh, in a few days because I wanted to take a look at well, what does this look like on the ground? You know, 
Aliquippa is fascinating because, you know, it's been in financial receivership since Ronald Reagan was president, lost half its population. Steel, uh, steel mill got knocked down. It lost jobs. U.S. Air was a major employer. It shut down a hub. I mean, it's the kind of place that reporters in 2016 would go and go into a diner and, and you know, hear, hear the people there talking about Trump. Ancestrally Democratic, but kind of uh, white uh, blue collar, white working class had moved away from it. I picked Aliquippa because they just announced a few months ago that in the site of the old steel mill, they're now going to build a new low carbon steel mill because of a lot of Biden's policies, frankly, uh, the, the, the made in America provision uh, and the IRA and other stuff has convinced this New York steel company there's going to be a booming market for U.S. steel in the years ahead. So we're going to go and open up a new steel mill on this site. And about a week before I went out there, uh, the city of Aliquippa, a very charismatic young black mayor there, held a public ceremony. Uh, the city had come out of financial receivership uh, for the first time since, since 1987. And unemployment in the county was down from 10% when Biden was elected to 3.5% today. So I went out there and hung out with the mayor, Dwan Walker, who said, like, you wouldn't believe what's going on here. We have home builders building market rate houses in Aliquippa literally for the first time in decades. And I said, wow, so people must really be excited about Joe Biden. And he looked at me with a blank expression and said, nobody knows that Joe Biden has anything to do with this. People don't connect uh, kind of what's going on on the ground there to democratic policies and, and, and to Joe Biden. And Biden hasn't been out to Aliquippa while he was president. Uh, but Walker, the mayor, told me, he said, you know who was actually here a few years ago was Donald Trump. He showed up. Shell was opening up a new petrochemical plant up the river um, that had been greenlit during the Obama administration. Trump showed up, held a rally for thousands of people at the plant, pointed to it and said, that wouldn't have happened if it weren't for me. So, you know, you, you talked earlier about kind of the, the policy ideas and the politics. I think of I think of, of of Washington as being kind of bifurcated between wonks and hacks. Uh, and what I relearned out on that trip to Aliquippa was that you can do everything right from a policy perspective and really help places that need it. But if you can't also do the grip and grin, showing up at the rally, uh, kind of hack politics stuff that Trump is great at, uh, you're not going to get credit for it and it's going to imperil your reelection bid. And I think if Biden loses, it's not going to be because people take a look at his industrial policy and decided, no, no, that's not for me. That didn't work. It's because it will work, but they won't know um, that, that he's the one that deserves credit for. It, and so they'll vote for someone else. Here's something I genuinely don't understand, like being very, like I'm connected to like the DC space. Obviously I work at a think tank, but I'm also like out here in Austin. So I'm not like in the scope of things. I don't understand why the Biden administration hasn't performed the politics of this differently. So like very explicitly, um, and you wrote about this in, you know, Devil's Bargain, but you know, Trump has the Andrew Jackson portrait, Andrew yeah, Jackson, yeah. and that's obviously like a Steve Bannon thing, uh, but Andrew Jackson's there. Like this is the metaphor, the metaphorical president who he's attaching himself to. Um, Joe Biden very explicitly attaches himself to FDR. Uh, mm. And it seems to me the obvious political play here would have been, hey, I'm obviously hobbled, um, not 
mentally. I think Biden is 100% there mentally, but like, I think at a political performance level, he's definitely slower. He doesn't translate to the social media age. Mm -hmm. I guess I don't understand why there aren't like a bunch of like modern day Francis Perkins or like Alina Khan, but like for an yeah. issue that people actually are voting on. So once again, I think Alina Khan's done a great job at the FTC, but I also don't think that voters are actually voting on it. Like, I don't oh, understand totally why totally, the person, yeah. I don't understand why you don't <laughs> find a like Lena Khan equivalent for the, um, once again, the CHIPS Act. There's a CHIPS yeah. office in the White House. I'm just kind of curious, like, maybe that's just me just like kind of like Monday no, morning quarterbacking, was... but I'm curious what you think about that. No, it, it, it kind of baffles me too, uh, especially having been out and visited one of these, you know, quote unquote, uh, success stories, uh, you know, and seeing the positive effects it's had and then seeing the gap between you know, the, the economic effects on the ground and sort of the lack of political credit going back to Democrats and the Biden administration. I don't know. Uh, I think part of it is, look, Trump, for all his faults, loved nothing better than getting out there, holding a political rally out in real America, rallying the troops, turning it into an event, taking credit, basking in voter adulation, you know, the whole nine yards. And Biden either because of his age, I, I do think it's a big factor, or because of his handlers, simply hasn't done that and doesn't really do that much in, in a way that I, th I think he should. It, it may just be that, that his age and stamina are too much of an impediment. But I think the other reason is, you know, Biden is heading out to Philadelphia to, I think he's give, what, giving a speech at the Liberty Bell. He instead has chosen this theme of, you know, we need to save American democracy from Donald mm -hmm. Trump, which you know, certainly resonates with a lot of Americans. Uh, the thing I would question is, you know, if you're, if your motivating issue as a voter is saving America from, from Donald Trump, I, I think you're pretty likely to be a Joe Biden voter already. Whereas, you know, if I were in the White House, I would send Biden to Aliquippa to a corner of a very important swing state and say, listen, politicians have been coming through here since Ronald Reagan was president and they shut down your steel mill telling you that they were going to make Aliquippa great again. They were going to bring back jobs, prosperity. We'll look down at the Ohio River at what's going up there, a brand new steel mill that has you know, come in because of my policies. Houses are being built. Jobs are being created. Unemployment is down. And I need you to recognize that I'm the one that delivered that. And if you elect me to another term, you'll get four more years of movement uh, in this positive direction, which you've lacked for the last you know, 40 odd years. You know, to me, that's the argument that a President Biden should and can justifiably make based on the policies that, that he's instituted as president, especially when you consider the fact that really this election is going to come down as, as it has the last two mm -hmm. cycles to three Midwestern states, Pennsylvania, Michigan and Wisconsin. Trump swept them all in 2016 and won the White House. Biden took them all back in 2020 and won the White House. And I think if either candidate sweeps all three of those in November, that that person is almost guaranteed to be president of the United States. So I would certainly put more of my effort uh, on a kind of chips economy kitchen table focus and point to the things that I've done um, than talk about these kind of more abstract themes uh, of preserving American democracy. But Again, you know, I'm a journalist and an author. <laughs> I'm not a political strategist, and the people in the Biden White House seem to have slightly different ideas. This actually gets to the, you know, for this last third of the conversation, this gets to the the um, subtitle of the book, which is like 
uh, a new politics. And I think this mm -hmm. also brings together the, your, your, your Bannon book here too, which is, um, I'll just tell you this. Um, I launched the realignment in 2019, like actually like your book, um, and the framing uh, of of this opportunity, like I wasn't like pro Trump, but I definitely like saw, okay, there is this moment. That, this is why Bannon's an attractive figure to people, despite everything Bannon. Um, he more yeah. than any other figure I could really think of in our political system is really good at articulating yes. um, yeah. the 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 opportunity to break ourselves out of just swinging back and forth every four to eight years. Um, I feel as if the biggest failure on the populist rights front to switch to that side of the conversation is they have not built a new politics. Um, and it'd be very hard for you to write. I was going to ask you, I guess I kind of am asking you if you were to write a version of this book that focus on the new right or the populist mm. right, who would be the two or three people? Um, it's not quite clear that you could write a book or here's the thing. You could definitely write that book. You could have like, you know, Senator Vance, you could have Senator Rubio, you, you, you could do it, but there'd be too many tangents and you'd say, well, okay, was this January 6th or was this like censorship or was this like, what, what, what kind well, of happened there? Well, and, and, but, and, and also none of those peoples are the, are the actual drivers and protagonists of what's happening in, in, in Republican politics. That's, I don't, I don't think you do that book. I mean, there, there just is Trump is still the dominant figure. You know, he's the son that everyone re, you know revolves around. Yeah, you know, we see Tom Emmer, uh, House Republican, who wanted to be speaker, whose speaker bid Trump um, brutally <laughs> deep sixed in the aftermath of Kevin McCarthy's ouster. Um, you know, comes out, swallows his pride, and endorses Donald Trump for president. I mean, they're the, the only meaningful figure in Republican politics and policy today is Donald Trump. And because Trump doesn't really have a policy agenda, I don't think the new right really stands for anything policy-wise. I mean, I guess if you wanted to kind of boil it down, you could say- They're intuitions. Uh, you know, it's like there are Trumpist intuitions. Exactly. And I was going to say, I was going to say impulses. Like there'd yeah. be, there'd be, you know, anti-China, um, anti-immigration, build the wall. You know, you could, you could certainly, you could certainly craft slogans, but- you know, Steve Bannon doesn't have like a five part plan for, um, you know, immigration reform or anything like that. It's just build the wall and deport everybody left inside. And so there, there really isn't a new right. It, it's sort of more of a, it's remains a cult of personality. And I think that's one reason why Trump is, I think, going to traipse through the Republican primaries and be the nominee again come this summer. Something I wonder then um, eventually, whether it's um, this year or in 2028, Trump will leave the political stage. Um, do you think the new right gets rolled effectively without Trump as broad cover? A good example of this kind of debate was you had Nippon yeah. um, Steel buy, um, you know, try to buy like um, the American Steel Company last month. Yeah. Um, and Michael Strain, he's at AEI, he's a traditional white conservative on yeah. economic questions, very much not in the frame of like this show, but he just sort of says, hey, J.D. Vance could only get two other Republican senators to say that like, they were opposed to Napone Steel buying this American steel company. I think it's possible that the new right is overrated as a political group. And I kind of wonder then within that category, and this is separate from the debate about whether or not Napone Steel is a good idea. Mm -hmm. um, just it seems to me that like 
the advantage the populist left has is that because there are a broader set of ideas that aren't revolving around one individual, even yeah. if like AOC yeah. retires or Bernie retires or X, Y, and Z, Biden like, you know, wins re-election, there's still a body of work there that will like live on by definition. Yeah, I, I think that's right. It's funny. I was going to jump in a different direction to answer that, which is to say that I mean, to me, the clearest sign of the emptiness of Trumpism as a policy agenda is to look at what happens to Republicans uh, who run in off-year elections when Trump is not on the ballot. They lose. You know, they lose in suburbs. They lose in inter. You know, they 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 lose across the country, and that's one reason why Democrats almost won back the House in 2022, despite predictions of this big Republican wave. The, the problem is, if your party it, it is built around this kind of cult of personality, you need that person to be the unifying force to win elections. That's one of the things that's going to make 2024 interesting. I think you could also flip it around um, and, and present this as a problem for Democrats, and, and specifically for my Democrats, you know, the, the, the kind of left populists, because... Democrats over the last seven years have had the great advantage of having Trump be the unifying force that binds all Democrats together, progressives like AOC to centrists like Joe Biden. If you remove Trump from that equation, then I think you reopen a lot of the intraparty ideological debates that like really define democratic politics throughout the 1980s and 90s, as I write about in the book, and really define democratic politics in, in, in my political writing career from like 2000, about 2000 up until Trump got elected. And then all of a sudden, those debates stopped mattering so much because there was this sort of emergency among Democrats of we've, we've, we've got to bind together and get rid of Trump. So I, you know, I think the future is wide open for both parties uh, after 2024. And it isn't really clear to me where either, like, I don't have a strong conviction that the Republican Party is going to go in this direction or the Democratic Party is going to go in that direction, except to say that I do think there is more of an understanding that these populist impulses, whether it's kind of Trumpism um, or or left the, the left populism I write about, uh, have a fundamental appeal to people that cannot be forgotten, and that returning to some kind of a, you know, anodyne heritage foundation style policy, or uh, you know, Atari Democrat mid '80s market friendly neoliberalism, just isn't going to be compelling to a broad swath of American voters in 2025 and thereafter. I think even after these characters are all off the stage, including Donald Trump, they're going to continue to influence and shape the way that our politicians think and act and behave and try and appeal to voters. You know, something I'm curious about, because this uh, this quote is used both positively and negatively. I wanted to hear what you think about this. So um, famously, um, especially in 2016, Bernie Sanders was known as being just the economics first person. He's looking yeah. at things through wages, workers, the economy, et cetera. And Hillary Clinton um, famously poo-pooed that at a rally where she said, if we were to break up the banks tomorrow. Let's give Bernie what he wants. Would racism be over? Yeah. Um, and people say, obviously, that's obviously not true. Yeah. Um, I want to focus, though, on the politics of that, because I think it actually gets to a core weakness of the Bernie side of the party, which is just that 
think of think of like the most the, the most heretical view I think Bernie held in 2016 was definitely his view towards migration and guest workers. Mm -hmm. um, there's that famous quote where he basically says, "Oh, like mass importing workers is a Koch brothers policy," um, and I think that's not Bernie being racist. It's not him being anti-immigrants. Him just seeing workers through the lens of wages and what does the actual labor pool in Pennsylvania look like, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But if you're looking at the modern Democratic Party, Democrats don't just see work like migrants through the lens of wages. They see it through the lens of child separation and border walls and nationalism. So it just seems that the whether or not like Hillary's quote was, I think, kind of just like defensive, like culture war liberalism. I yeah. think at a political level, it gets at a weakness of the Bernie approach. I'm curious how you would think about this dynamic. Yeah, well, and, and I'll say, I don't I don't think a ton of Hillary Clinton as a politician, but that was a devastatingly effective political attack on Bernie because he does think, and he did think of the world strictly, I mean, he's almost like, he's almost like a 1930s kind of, you know, radical in the sense that to Bernie, everything goes back to economics. And I think he still sort of feels that at his heart. Um, you know, but what what Clinton was doing there very effectively was signaling to, you know, to black voters who are incredibly important in Democratic primaries that like, this isn't a guy that thinks about you. This isn't a guy that has your interest in mind. And this isn't a guy that really has any connection to kind of the, um, you know, local Democratic parties like all across the South that are so important because because Bernie frankly didn't, as I write about kind of the Bernie section of the book. Um, I think that what happened in 2020 was almost kind of an overcorrection that both Bernie and Warren became so convinced that they had to express a kind of, you know, full spectrum leftism, not just on the economic matters that, that really motivated them, but on everything. Uh, and I think a, a big part of that was just the visceral re reaction to, to, to Trump's racism, misogyny, xenophobia. It, it kind of created for a lot of liberals that I know and related to, and certainly for like Warren and Sanders, a kind of moral imperative to take the maximalist position in opposition to Trump on whatever issue was out there that Trump was talking about. So if Trump thinks immigrants are rapists and he wants to deport them all, then by definition, all you know, immigrants are good. We should open up the borders and welcome in anybody who kind of wants to come. Um, electoral consequences be damned. And I think that Democrats um, uh, sort of like self-hypnotized into believing that there wouldn't be electoral consequences to this kind of behavior, that they basically, and, and, mm -hmm. and a lot of them still do this, folks on the left, they kind of try and like abstract away the, the, the practical political consequences that espousing those kinds of policies are going to have if you go out to America as, you know, the as, as Warren was at the time in 20 in 20 fall of 2019, like the leading Democratic primary candidate start pushing these ideas. A lot of people outside, um, you know, Washington, liberal progressive circles are going to sit up and think, wait a minute, this doesn't sound like something that I want. Um, this sounds way too right. I'm all for a wealth tax. I'm all for mm -hmm. making Wall Street pay. And hey, you know, you can break up Goldman Sachs while you're at it. But no way do I want to open the borders and no way do I want to pay a you know, $30 trillion to fund a Medicare for all bill and give out my health insurance. And I think we saw very clearly the shortcomings of, of, of that kind of self-hypnosis in 2020 in the, in the failure of both Warren and Sanders to emerge as the Democratic nominees. 
Yeah, just a quick last note before we get into the last questions. Um, and actually, as we said earlier, the thing I would look at if Biden loses is a backlash on spending programs. And this is within the Democratic Party, but also on the border issue, because the other narrative, whether or not it actually decided things at the end of the day, the narrative is going to be Democrats became way too lax on the border issue, thinking that Trump had expanded the window too broadly. Uh, and then and this is, you know, um, you know, Mayor Adams getting in fights with Governor of Texas and with the Biden administration, I think that's going to be a big narrative coming out of next year. So, okay, so um, five quick, take as long as you need um, to answer these questions, but we'll just go through them um, one at a time. Quick question, what is it going to take to make uh, progressivism or left populism attractive to actual voters of color, by which I mean voters in South Carolina, not like people who work at universities, think tanks, NGOs, et cetera? Uh an attractive and appealing mainstream democratic politician to be the vessel for that. So my, my favorite guy is uh, Senator Raphael Warnock in Georgia. Mm -hmm. So, and that's a good, and that's basically the point is the, the real test for left populism is you take Raphael Warnock or yeah. Okay. That's actually, okay, that's, a, that's a good Yeah, answer. Like I, I think, I mean, the way to think about this is not to think of it in terms of in order for left populism to exceed to succeed, we need to elect an AOC type, uh, you know, ra radical or socialist, whatever. I mean, the, the, at the end of the day, these are policies. This is a way of governing and a way of thinking about the world uh, and, and what the American political economy should look like. That could come in the packaging of an AOC or a Bernie Sanders, but you know, I submit in the book that it, that it could and probably must. Uh, instead, come in the packaging of somebody like Joe Biden, somebody like Warnock, somebody like Whitner, if it's going to succeed and appeal to that broad swath that you're talking about. And I think this goes to your earlier point about how there's a part of the left that just appears very angry with Joe Biden. I think there's a part of the yeah. left um, of my generational category, I'm 31, who just did not have it within their political imagination that their political task was to convince Joe Biden, a Joe Biden type of yeah, something it's, by it's, means that wasn't like a protest. Absolutely. And like, think about it from the standpoint of like a young radical leftist who's just discovered politics through Bernie Sanders and it seems romantic and exciting, you know, and then somebody, somebody like me or a political consultant comes in and says, well, actually, you know, if you want a Democrat to get elected, you have to go convince this 50 year old laid off union worker in Aliquippa, Pennsylvania to get on board with Bernie. And you're probably going to have to do a lot of compromising on your personal positions to get him there. That's not a lot of fun. It's more fun to go, you know, put the rose in your Twitter bio and kind of, you know, rant against the mainstream media or sell out politicians, uh, you know, and have a lot of fights on social media instead of going out and doing the hard work of campaigning and getting elected. That's why I think one of the one of the past four we haven't really talked about is, uh, you know, the one place I really do um, uh, see kind of positivity on the democratic left. It's coming from the labor movement, frankly. Like mm -hmm. if you work for a union, if you're an organizer, you're out there in the real world talking to real people every day. Uh, and I think the fact that labor has seen a lot of successes in organizing recently gives me some hope that this brand of politics really does have kind of a path forward and that the democratic party, especially younger folks like you, you know, aren't kind of all consumed with, uh, you know, identity politics and fighting on social media, that kind of thing. Yeah, another quick question. It's, this is more of a comment. I was reading the book, you spent so much time on Wall Street, justify as a category. Mm -hmm. Wall Street has just vanished from our politics. 
It, it's so interesting. Like, yeah. it, it, like the early 2010s American politics, this is from reading your book, are just yeah. so centered on Wall Street. And not just like in response to the financial crisis, but it seems with all that energy, you kind of saw this with Wall Street bets for a second, but that was more of its other yeah, weird yeah, thing. Yeah. Like what happened to Wall Street as a topic? Well, Wall Street, like quite obviously, was the bad guy in the 2008 financial crash. And that broad American animosity was compounded by the fact that Wall Street also was the vehicle for the recovery that Obama and Geithner chose. Now, maybe it had to be any sort of debate the, the ins and outs of what they did, but certainly they were the great beneficiaries. Nobody went to jail, no big banks collapsed, and the middle class kind of suffered from it. So I think they made a very handy villain. Let's remember, we also went through that long period of austerity in the middle 2010s where Millennials weren't getting jobs. You know, a AOC, if you kind of rewind mm. her story in my book, was working two different bartending jobs and struggling. She had a life to pay coach. Off. I didn't know that fact. You, she had, she isn't that, isn't that that, that's a thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like things were not going well for people in the mid 2000s. And it wasn't hard to look at Wall Street and, and say with quite a bit of justification, you know, it's your fault and I'm angry about it and I'm angry about the politicians that enabled it. And so I'm going to go vote for Bernie Sanders or maybe if they were a little older, a different kind of uh, you know, unhappy worker, I'm going to go vote for Donald Trump. And so the fact that you know we've lived through the financial crisis recovery, uh, I think part of it is that COVID just kind of mixed up our politics and created new villains. It doesn't, uh, there's, not a, there's not a convenient, Wall Street for a variety of reasons doesn't fit Right, but also, the... but also to tie it back to the book, yeah. um, I think I think Trump and Biden's response, heavily informed by my left populists to the COVID crash, has returned the economy to a state of health such that like it wouldn't be obvious to blame Wall Street for stuff. You know, Warren and some other people have tried with the whole greedflation argument that corporate it's not really catching catching on though, is it? You know, so I I, I think you're right. They don't blame Wall Street. Partly because other things have kind of superseded Wall Street uh, as being a bad guy, but partly because the response to the COVID crash was so successful um, from kind of a financial and an economic standpoint. Player book editor for a second. Why did you not focus on tech? Tech is based on so you focus, mm -hmm. you focus, you focus on um like democratic activists who go into tech and build like mobilization platforms, obviously. Yeah. But like the second, if the first half of the 2010s is Wall Street, second half of the 2010s for good or for ill is tech. Why was tech not a focus for you? Interesting. You know, I thought of the tech component, but as you said, like my interest was like I spent a lot of time with these kind of young Silicon Valley tech organizers who were trying to fix a problem that Democrats had. We have all these, you know, young voters, minority voters. They didn't turn out for Hillary Clinton. Why not? How can we reach them? And they came up with like really interesting technological solutions that kind of short circuit A reached those voters, but B short circuited the need to, you know, for politicians to go hat in hand to big Wall Street banks. So I guess I kind of come at tech from a slightly different angle. But I, you know, the other reason is that the, you know, Issues like antitrust, like even though they were talked about, like, you know, Bernie and Warren, I think both wanted like a new Glass-Steagall. That, that was kind of their line during the campaign. You know, if I'd written this book and published it in the fall of 2019 or the, you know, the spring of 2020, when those ideas are fresh, I think it might have been more about tech, uh, more about antitrust, that sort of thing. But it just became clear in the 2020 elections that the only real issue 
was Donald Trump and whether or not he was going to get reelected. I think the minute, you know, I, I feel like there was like a break glass and emergency kind of moment, maybe after the Nevada caucus where Democrats just sat up and said, we're not willing to risk anything. Let's all rally and unite behind Joe Biden. Let's get rid of Donald Trump. And that basically eclipsed kind of the policy discussion on tech and other things. Um, but that certainly is going to be, you know, a, a lingering and growing issue going forward. I mean, you know, you, you can see it today, both in, in kind of the Lena Khan sense of, mm -hmm. of trying to implement new ideas about antitrust, but also in the furious backlash among both parties, but especially among Democrats to, you know, Facebook, TikTok, you know, all the social media companies that they blame rightly and wrongly um, for you know the rise in continued relevance of Donald Trump, the MAGA movement, things like that, and of course Elon Musk. We didn't have we, we didn't have Elon Musk as a villain in my book. He kind of came late on the scene, but maybe for the paperback, I'll sort of tack in a new new epilogue to, to yeah, fold in and get other some book. tech in there. <laughs> so yeah. last two last two quick ones. So quick one is populism played out. Like I think I think a, a thing that Biden understands and I think Trump is already not understanding with his jokes about being a dictator for a day. People are exhausted. And I I think there's I think there's a there's a at its worst populists just sort of bring this pugilism to politics. Mm -hmm. But I think even for people who are sympathetic, they're just sort of like, man, there's been 10 years of this. So yeah, is I, populism still a useful like mental framework to bring to politics? Yeah, I, I disagree. Look, if you're talking about kind of Trump authoritarian populism, um, that's that's certainly not what I'm arguing for. And I guess we'll find out pretty soon whether or not it's played out. Um, but in terms of the economic populism, that's really kind of what I'm writing about. No, I don't think it at all. It is at all. And, and not only that, but I think it's necessary. I mean, you know, Biden, you know, Pop, economic populism is the thing that unifies Democratic voters, uh, liberals, moderates. It pulls in independents. It pulls in a lot of Republicans. Talking about those kind of kitchen table issues, you know, new jobs, building new factories. I think all of that is a positive. And that Biden, if anything, should be running as more of a populist progressive than he is, because as we talked about, he's doing good things in a lot of these swing states that people don't really know about or aren't giving him credit for. So. The brand of populism I write about and I think about, uh, I think is more important than ever. So I'd, I'd be a no on that one. Okay. So to close us out, um, speaking of 2018, Marshall, who is excited about your first book, we've done a lot of like poo-pooing of like activists who are excited about things. Like what is the new politics opportunity? You know, like like it, this, for anyone who's coming to this space, I think there is still a opportunity to build a new politics and break us out yeah. of the log jam. How would you kind of like sum up that opportunity that people could take yeah, I, from the left or the right? I think the opportunity on the left and the right doesn't really kind of get thought of this way. I mean, the, one of the themes in my book, you know, I start in, in, in 1978 in the Carter White House, because for me, that's when Wall Street first kind of sunk its claws into the Democratic Party. And you see the rise of, of you know, what was then called kind of neoliberalism. And you have this neoliberal era that I think lasts through, you know, I would date it to two. 2008 in my book, because that's when the financial crash was. But I think that that ended a political era and it began a new one, both on the Republican side and the Democratic side. I don't think anybody recognized that at the time, but I think in hindsight that we can and we do. That's really been the theme of my last two books, Devil's Bargain on the right, um, Rebels on the left. I think the opportunity for young people is to figure out 
what a post-neoliberal politics is going to look like. I think there's going to have to be a fairly heavy element of populism, whether you're on the right or you're on the left. I think if you're on the Democratic side, the challenge is exactly the one you talked about earlier. How do you get, let's say, you know, younger, multiracial demographic interested in these ideas? I think the challenge on the right is how do you put a set of policies uh, to to kind of build out just this 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 impulse that Donald Trump represents? I mean, how can you turn this into a kind of a responsible but also attractive governing vision that can pull in more voters than just the 46, 47 percent of the American electorate that Donald Trump is able to win? Um, I think that's a challenge on both sides is figuring out how you take those building blocks and move them forward in a way that is going to build uh, an enduring and welcoming majority that not only wins you the White House, um, but gives you enough of a lock on the House and the Senate that you're actually able to govern once you are in the White House, which has been a rare, very rare thing um, over the last 20 years or so. Well stated. Joshua, this has been so interesting. I hope folks check out, once again, I think these books should be read together, but obviously considering the release date, focus on The Rebels first. Thank you so much <laughs> for joining me on The Realignment. Thank you so much, Marshall. I love the idea that this is like a two-set compendium that readers should 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 buy and read them both. I, I thought of marketing it that way, but I think that's that's a brilliant insight on your the, part. The, so the, the problem is your book, the first book is a little too like Bannon-centric and you'd have to do, yeah, okay, yeah. so then there was this thing. <laughs> yeah, well, you know. we could be discerning. <laughs> we'll let people make up their own minds. So, you know, maybe err on the side of reading them both. But uh, no, thank you so much for having me. It was a great conversation. Thanks for joining. Hope you enjoyed this episode. If you learned something, like the sort of mission, or want to access our subscriber-exclusive Q&A, bonus episodes, and more, go to realignment.supercast.com and subscribe to our $5 a month, $50 a year, or $500 for lifetime membership rates. See you all next time.